Spencer. Yeah? I want to know what the fuck's going on here. I don't get you. Well, I'll make it real simple. My company transfers me to Baton Rouge. Been down here about six months. Now, I don't know a goddamn thing about the swamps of Louisiana. I get sent out on some bullshit military exercise, and all of a sudden, guys start coming at us from out of the fucking trees. Now, I'll ask you again, what the hell is going on here? I'll tell you something. I'm just a city boy. You got a question about what's going on here? I haven't the slightest fucking idea. Except we ran into some people that are real weird, and I think maybe they're trying to kill us. All because some asshole fired blanks out of his damn machine gun. Yeah. Because a bunch of assholes stole some boats. Yeah. Ladies. Gentlemen. And neither. It's time to put your mind in its full, upright, and locked position. That's right. It's time to wrap your thoughts in a pretty little bow. Welcome to The Secret Cinema, the film podcast with a taste for crawfish and quagmires. I'm Paolo Carone, my co-host is Carrie Chafee, and this week we're joined by filmmaker and contributor to Chicago film guide Cinephile.info, and that's Cinephile with an F, John Dixon, to discuss Walter Hill's 1981 Bayou thriller Southern Comfort. Now, a quick side note. Wikipedia suggests the existence of an Iranian TV re-edit of Southern Comfort with the name Operation Lagoon. I couldn't find any real proof that this exists, but if someone out there has a copy, I would love to see it. Anyway, here's Carrie with the plot summary. Sergeant Poole leads a unit of eight men into the swamps of Louisiana for a training exercise. After getting lost, the unit discovers three canoes and decides to take them to ease their journey. But that decision pits them against the Cajun natives who live in the swamp. After one of the men fires machine gun blanks at the Cajuns, they retaliate by shooting Sergeant Poole in the head. From that moment on, it is no longer a routine military exercise. Can the remaining men band together to find their way out of the swamp? Or will the Cajuns show this would-be squad a thing or two about Southern hospitality? A distinct trait of the films of Walter Hill is narrative efficiency. Hill wastes little time getting us into the action, and the minimalist dialogue provides the necessary context and information without wasting a word. In our first clip, Spencer, played by Keith Carradine, chats with the new transfer, Hardin, played by Powers Booth, before they begin their training exercise. This brief exchange, from about five minutes into the film, supplies the viewer with a decent bit of background for the action to come. Here's that clip. In the real world, you do something useful, or you like the rest of the members of the second squad? I work for the Tramco, chemical engineer. College men. They're kind of rare in Texas, aren't they? Oh, we might just come up for one every now and then. 
You know, one might get the impression that you don't enjoy an occasional chat with your fellow guardsmen. Guess what? You're right. Well, I can't say as a blame here and there. Reese is on the impression most of the time that he's in a dime novel. Stucky, he's smart enough to read a dime novel. The coach, well, yeah, I think I know the type. Look, these guys are okay. They just want to have a little fun with you being the new boy and all. They're not okay. They're just Louisiana versions of the same dumb rednecks I've been around my whole life. As you may have noticed from the other two samples, Spencer and Hardin are positioned as fairly intelligent protagonists. However, they are part of a squad, and the other soldiers in the squad create the nightmarish situation that befalls them through a series of stupid, emotional, and immoral decisions, all of which provide the film with certain allegorical implications. In our final clip, we hear Corporal Coach Bowden, Sergeant Casper, Corporal Reese, Private Stucky, and Private First Class Sims capturing a Cajun man as their prisoner. You'll hear Sims punch the Cajun man in the middle of the clip. What does this depiction of unruly soldiers bring to mind? Here's that clip, and we'll see you on the other side for our discussion of Southern Comfort. You're under arrest! Get the hell away from that prisoner! I told you to stay in the back! Mission accomplished, Sergeant. Oh, bullshit! You use your real bullets! Just piss him away! I didn't panic. Oh, yes. Alright, easy now. We've got to interrogate him. Hey, get out here! Surrender! Drop the knife. Mon rien! Son of a bitch, I said drop the goddamn knife! So is that very, eh? So is that very, eh? Son of a bitch! You could have busted his jaw! That's right. We want him to talk! He almost knocked his mouth clear down to his ass. Jesus Christ, Sims! We gotta interrogate the man. Now, how in the hell is he gonna talk to us? You gonna break his fucking jaw? That's his fucking problem. What the hell did you do that for? That son of a bitch shot out and boo. Oh, fucking. Come on, Lonnie. Let's go see what's inside. Secret Cinema. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Secret Cinema. And we have a brand new guest. So, guest, could you please introduce yourself? Yes. Hi, my name is John Dixon. I'm uh, happy to be here. I write for the website here in Chicago called Cinephile, where I do just general capsule reviews every now and then. And then I'm uh, a in, uh, burdening independent filmmaker in the scene. So yeah. I guess that's what qualified me to be here. Yeah, you're more and qualified. And you know us. You're more qualified <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. than yeah. most of our guests. So. <laughs> But yeah, glad to have you here, yeah, and uh, you uh, gave us three choices, and I went with Southern Comfort, because the last five movies we have done have been mostly <laughs> frustratingly mediocre, and I really like Southern Comfort. I really like Walter Hill, and yeah, uh, this movie is a 1981, uh, I guess thriller would be the broadest category I could put it under, but it's, yeah. uh, I think this is... Uh, a really interesting work, just on its own. It's like a, a very enjoyable, thought 
thought-provoking genre piece while not being, like, overly complicated. But if you see it in the career of Walter Hill, as I kind of watched it, this is my third time watching it, so I tried to watch it this way, I noticed some really interesting things uh, that he does with this movie that kind of fit into the arc of his overall career, uh, like, a, uh, well, really a specific subset of his overall career. And I'm going to talk about that later, but, uh, Carrie, <laughs> what did you think of the movie? I, so I have a split reaction to this movie. On one side, I really like this movie. I like Walter Hill movies. I like what he is doing in the movie. The way he plays the group, group dynamics is really impressive. And the filmmaking in general is impressive because he's, I mean, he's filming in a swamp. I can't imagine that that was very easy. No. <laughs> and I read that they filmed this in the winter. So not only was it not easy, but it was also probably freezing. It looks cold. Yeah, it does look cold. Yeah. Um, so on that side, I really like this movie. I like uh, all of the, the like physicality and technical aspects of this movie. But on the other side... My, like, visceral reaction to this movie is it is ex so incredibly frustrating. Like, uh, the... <laughs> like, uh, there's not a lot of rational behavior in this movie, and part of that is because of the situation that they're in. But as someone who's watching the movie going, you know, I, I'm going, that's not what I would do, or like, oh, why did you react that way? And, and so... All of that behavior is there, or the, the action and the behavior and the plot points are there to drive the movie forward, which makes total sense. But for me as a viewer, at times I was like clenching my fists with frustration. <laughs> um, so I, I, that's what I mean by I have like a split reaction to this movie where I really like it, but I'm, I don't think this is a movie I would necessarily return to in Walter Hill's canon. Like, I, I don't think I would watch this movie again for just pleasure. All right. And, John, what do you think? I'm going to go the... I'm going to take an opposing side there. I do think, it. I think, <laughs> Challenge me. <laughs> I think this is actually one of the stronger Walter Hill films. And seeing it again, um, I'm really kind of stunned by the bluntness of the film. Uh, it, it's, it feels incredibly raw. Um, I really want to get into the final shootout, but we can do that later. I think where you're coming from with like people getting frustrated with these characters, I think that's obviously intentional on the filmmaker's part. Sure. And given that there's so many characters to identify with in the squad, I think that is where it neatly positions you in. You have these different factions of the United States, in a sense. And I think mm. maybe there's the significance of the final image of... Yeah. <laughs> you can. yeah. So I should also bring up that I'm not like a huge war movie fan. So and I'll, you and know I'll, that's always like a strike against a movie. Sure, but it's but not I, that the movie's fault. Right? And, and I think there's something. <laughs> I mean, war movie. You said thriller. I think that there there's a lot of genres in this movie. There's a yeah. thriller. There's a war film. There's a western. I mean, Walter Hill yeah. said all of his films are westerns, and especially the final scene. Uh, in the final set pieces of the movie feel extremely out of, you know, a classic Western. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, the dance hall. The dance hall, the quiet outside where, like, the outlaws could be hiding behind the No technology. Barn. No technology. And I think that this is a movie that really um, comes to a head in Walter Hill's career at this point. If you go down 
or up his filmography. I think you're finding a lot of his style that he sort of set out with um, the driver, a certain austerity. You have sort of the Western nods with the long riders and Keith Carradine. You have, um, oh, the Warriors. Yeah. I think the Warriors is the biggest through line because yeah. it's a group of people trying to find their way to a common goal, which mm -hmm. yeah. which eventually he revisits in his 1992 film, I think, uh, Trespass, yeah. which is an extremely yeah. uh, that's great the film. Bill that's the Bill Paxton yeah. Ice Tea Ice Tea yeah movie. I feel like we started that, and unfortunately we didn't finish it. it sounds. It's just one of those How things. did we stop the I Bill Paxton Ice Tea movie? Well, and if you look at those films as a trilogy, in a sense, you get. They're all films that take place in like well-known U.S. cities, and they operate on another level of like they're completely removed almost from the environment that they're in. Um, but they all take those I think because this is in the Bayou, uh, New York City for the Warriors and Trespass here in Arkansas. So mm. uh, I think he does something really interesting with rendering these familiar places in the U.S. is alien. Yeah. And going off of what you just said of the group dynamics, I, that, I, I think that's definitely a strength of his uh, writing and directing. But one of the things I didn't really consider as I was doing research on uh, Southern Comfort, somebody pointed out that Walter Hill has this trend of he uh, typically kills one of the leaders within the, uh, the beginning yeah, of the movie yeah. because well, it throws the group into complete disarray. Well, I, one of the things I want to talk about, because you guys are both, both touched on something, so I really want to set this up because this will segue perfectly in the plot, which is I feel like we, we, we all know the Warriors well enough, and the Warriors definitely has like a prototype for this plot. I can't say for sure uh, whether Walter Hill has done this sort of plot prior to the Warriors, but... I know I've seen that one, and I actually looked this up. And the, well, the, he only did the, two movies before the Warriors. Okay, well, you so, could say Alien. To well, an but that's what Alien is after the Warriors, and, and Alien so, they kill the leader at and, the beginning. And, right. Well, and so there's like a, you can see this buildup. I wanted to write this. Down, I wrote this down really quick, which is the origin of the uh, group of people has to fight their way back through dangerous territory is actually a Greek story called. I'm going to pronounce this wrong, but Anabasis by Xenophon, the Greek writer. I've never, I never known this before, but this, this is literally the old, one of the oldest archetypes of a story in history. Huh. It's as old as, like, the not as old as the Odyssey and the Iliad, but it's, like, similar era of storytelling. And so with the Warriors, that is, like, from everything I can see, it's Walter Hill's initial adaptation of that broad idea of we have the Warriors... Uh, they're a group of people, and in The Warriors, it's key that there are bad ones in it. I think of James Remar, uh, in particular, as, like, yeah. the bad warrior. Oh, but for the most part, they, there's no, there's no bad thing they do. They're going to, uh, a part with every, they're going to that meetup, not Coney oh, Island. right, they're going they're to They're going the to the meetup with everybody. They just happen to be blamed for the bad thing that happens, but they don't actually do anything wrong. Then we move to Alien, which is a group of people go to a place and something bad happens. It doesn't really have the escape through dangerous, uh, dangerous territory part, but it does have the group, and it does introduce the idea of them doing something wrong. And then mm. them bringing it on themselves. And specifically, too, going into 
foreign territory and not just messing with something dangerous, but messing with something that they're just like, well, why not mess with it? Which leads to Southern Comfort, where our group of people go somewhere they're not familiar with, mess with something they shouldn't mess with, and then get into the warrior's plot of going and fighting their way back, which then leads to Aliens, which also is written by Walter Hill to a certain degree. He has a story credit, which a group of people go somewhere dangerous. Uh, they are clearly out of their element. They're overwhelmed. I, the way in which the Cajun people are filmed in this is very similar to the way the aliens in Aliens are filmed, or you see them in in just like glimpses and flashes and moments and you just this continuum of can so like aliens couldn't have like i feel like as much as walter hill is not the key creative force that would have to be james cameron walter hill is a producer and writer on it and southern comfort in this weird way is like i think of this as a great movie i'm not saying this to reduce this but it does seem like a like a bit of a building block or even just like a practice run or just like even just like an experiment with this core story idea where he's like trying to add new things or putting it in a different context and seeing how it works out I, yeah and i think like obviously someone like walter hill is probably a great admirer of a filmmaker like raul walsh yeah raul walsh has many films mm -hmm. of the group dynamic in war films where they're in a hostile territory i think what's interesting that walter hill kind of slyly does with this is that he places him in the u.s yeah, and they're not really on a mission necessarily. They're in yeah. Training. They said they're it's like a games. recon. It's a war game thing, yeah. and even extend certain people in the group play onto those war yeah. games and almost get kind of lost in the, uh, I guess, sort of the mediocrity, sort of the like, uh, the denseness of like military ethics and yeah. codes, and they get lost in the idea of maybe what their real purpose is and maybe where they are as human beings and. I think what's I, I, very interesting about Walter Hill is I, a lot of his films, I think, deal with masculine archetypes that really he is communicating aren't the right moves. They generally end oh, them sure. up in incredibly horrible situations because they act upon these primal instincts. So when they're in this woods and they're reduced to this raw, bare, like babes in the woods in a sense, they're kind of... Um, and I think that goes to where your, well, and, your frustration and, is with yeah, them not and, knowing what to do. And part of the the frustration of like the the characters and what you're saying about people reacting in a way where you wouldn't think that they would react that way. Um, part of having frustration about that is later their reactions end up biting them in the ass. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, or well, literally killing them. Let's really quickly yeah. let's get to how they get in the Let's get up to how they get sure. stuck in the woods. Well, and that's another really impressive thing about this movie is, you know, it starts, it says, Louisiana, 1973, and then seven minutes later, you know the whole plot of the movie. You're, and Yeah, you were <laughs> mentioning that, and that's a technique something probably picked up from Walsh, yeah. because Walsh is a, I can, I can curse on this, right? Yeah. Oh, he's yeah. a no-bullshit filmmaker. <laughs> you know, he's, he's, he's without pretension, someone like Walsh, and I think, like, he'll amongst his contemporaries is more of a follower of that sort of old style less pretension filmmaking that came out of Hollywood um, probably the closest person to him that's still working would be someone like Clint Eastwood to mm. the degree and I think they both subvert their general and they're impression. both big fans of westerns they're both big fans of westerns <laughs> yeah oh yeah and they're sort of trying to take them to I guess their logical 
conclusions. Yeah. Um, uh, but I think, like, it's kind of hard. I, there's something about Walter Hill, especially in this era, that you don't see too much of, especially in this day and age, where there are these kind of... Um, other than, I like, I want to say plain films, but they're not. They're incredibly complex, but they don't indulge in, like, some of his contemporaries at the time. They're not the indulgences of, like, a Scorsese or... Yeah. Sure. Um, uh, there's not, like, special yeah. effects or... There's no flourishes. Yeah. I mean, there's no, yeah. yeah, poetic flourishes. Though one could argue the end. Yeah. But I, I would like... Okay. We, can, we can talk about that. Yeah. Yeah, there's... Well, so going back to just the the setup for the movie, they're at like a training camp. Yeah, well, I guess? it's a National Guard uh, uh, training camp. There's sorry, uh, we are introduced to everything through Charles Harden, Corporal Charles Harden, played by the great Powers Booth. R.I.P. <coughs> yeah, and Powers Booth, uh, mm-hmm. he's he's transferring to Louisiana from Texas, and uh, he talks to Peter Coyote, who is the Sarge. But see the sergeant, yeah, Sergeant yeah. Poole, and he and we quickly uh, kind of get a sense of all the people. They they're about to do this training mission under Sergeant Poole as a group. Uh, Spencer, who is Keith Carradine, is clearly like the smart ass of the group, and yeah. he's talking about how he's the, he has prostitutes uh, waiting for everybody. So as soon at as the end of the exercise, yeah. So once they get through this, like clearly not supposed to take too long exercise, there will be they will be rewarded with prostitutes. Yeah. Well, and. There's nine people in the Bravo team that get sent out on this recon mission. And it's it's set up pretty clearly that Keith Carradine and Powers Booth are the, the two main kind of audience surrogates. Like yeah. the people you're supposed to kind of rely on to guide you through the movie. Well, and, and they give them a lot of character detail so you kind of get a sense of why they would be detached from everything. Like, like uh, Keith Carradine kind of has this like... Like, I've seen it all, and I can't be surprised by anything anymore attitude. And so he's like, whatever happens, he kind of stays back. He'll snark on it, but he doesn't actually really drive the group because he knows better. And then uh, Powers Booth comes in, and he's married, and he works as a chemical engineer. And he's clearly, like, a smart person who has lived, like, a normal life. And so he, when he sees things he's going very rational. wrong, yeah, he, so he like reacts very strongly to irrational behavior. And so the two Spencer and uh, Harden, the two who are more or less our protagonists, they kind of see they participate in the action, but also kind of stand slightly outside of it. I want to say that uh, Walter Hill describes Keith Carradine's character as nature's aristocrat. Which I thought was an interesting way of putting hmm. how he behaves. Yeah. Because he, he talks about how uh, Powers Booth and Keith Carradine play off each other. Because, as you mentioned, Powers Booth is like the hardworking, rational guy. Whereas Keith Carradine is this, I've seen it all, nothing surprises me type guy. Con- yeah. Common archetypes of even like the Hollywood studio system. Yeah. They remind me of the two characters played by Robert Mitchum. And I'm forgetting the other guy's name. I'm like the Lusty Man by Nicholas Ray. Oh, oh I have um, not seen that. Um, and also, like even like uh, my darling Clementine with um, Wyatt Earp and um, oh, what's his name? I'm ruining the other guy here. <laughs> but they, but these are you know playing off those kind of common archetypes. Yeah, and he's able to kind of breathe. Everybody's met fresh. those type of people. Yeah. Uh, I also want to take a second to say that people aren't named Powers enough anymore. 
They really that name name really needs to come back. I'm down with more powers. I might name my dog Powers. All right, so throwing that in the ring. So, but in the in the first few minutes, we get all this information. There, we we kind of get a sense of who the characters are. At least the characters we're going to follow. We know they're going to go on this exercise in the bayou. It doesn't seem like it's going to take more than a few hours, and then credits. And we kind of get like. Credits kind of show us, like, kind of set the mood of the swamp, uh, and then they're there. They're they're walking through... The men on a mission. Story. Yeah, men yeah. on a mission. They're on their mission, and almost immediately, as soon as the credits Five are minutes over, later. So, at, so, seven and a half minutes, we have this, all the setups done. Twelve minutes, okay, so, they but get to the canoes. But, yeah, so, before they get to the canoes, uh, they more or less get to a dead end. Like they're just like there's a big waterway and they're on a path and uh, Peter Coyote knows they he said what he says is either this map is wrong or all of a sudden I can't find my way around the block. So basically yeah they they don't know where they are. They he's either lost or just has been given bad information. So they have no idea where they are and they see very close to them like some sort of trapper's post. Uh, there's, there's re- like dead real, real dead animals, viewer. <laughs> These are like, it's, yeah, there's a lot of this, dead animals. This is a, a quick warning if you are listening this far and you still you want to watch it. Just be aware, there's you're going to see a lot of dead animals. <laughs> um, but they they see this and they see a, a bunch of uh, well, more or less canoes, but they're, they're parokes. Uh, that's the actual word for them, where it's like a like a tree that's like flattened and hollowed out, like to. That's what they. they you wouldn't like. know that. Word. Well, they said it in the movie. Karen. Oh, I missed that. <laughs> oh, <wow>. Yeah, <laughs> Fred Ward says it. Oh, Fred thought... Ward plays the soldier named. Well, that's Reese. a really He's fascinating uh, attention yeah. to detail that I think Walter Hill is actually really known for. Yeah. Um, and I think just based off what we're saying, I think that's that's where I think the undermining of the classic story comes in, in that they're not in hostile territory. They're in a situation that is a training exercise that. They bring on themselves. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I or a couple members do for the whole. I, we, Carrie and I just rewatched this yesterday, and so rewatching it today, I had a lot of this fresh in my mind. And honestly, I feel like it's very safe to say that Southern Comfort is a movie where we follow essentially the villains, uh, and then the the people who are being. Uh, attacked by the villains are more or less pushed so far to the side that they come across as the antagonists. And this yeah. is kind of the, the brilliance of this movie. A lot of things I read kind of tried to like argue that this was a Vietnam allegory, but I think that's incidental to the location. I think, like you said, John, this is an American allegory. Yeah. These are very, this is broadly referring to American types and putting it in the context of war of some kind, the way Americans conduct themselves at war. And I was thinking even of like, take this same format, because the, the other brilliant thing about having it be Americans versus Americans is it's very easy to substitute other groups in without sure. the, the thing falling apart, because it's... Uh, it's just kind of seeing like the communities and the way in which some one group doesn't exactly belong with the other community. Like, okay, so what happens is these soldiers see the canoes, and even though there's clearly like trappers recently killed animals and everything, they they convince Sergeant Poole to let them just take 
the the perokes and just they leave a note uh, and that's it. Yeah. That's it. They, like, they, and so they're they're canoeing they away. They always leave a note. They're canoeing yeah. away and they see the red. I leave the note. They snap the red next the Cajuns and that's when uh, Bowden yells, "Read the note. We left a note." <laughs> it's yeah. really funny. We're bringing it back. Uh, something I actually noticed that I, I guess I had never noticed before was um, the scene where Peter Coyote uh, explains to the the group we're gonna have to like take these boats and he basically leaves it up to a kind of vote like are we gonna take these boats at that moment when it cuts to the group standing there the sound design increases dramatically and mm-hmm. the, the the sound of the thicket of uh, birds and insects for one moment while they're thinking increases so far up in the mix it yeah. becomes kind of overpowering yeah, yeah like, you can hear the silence of the group, but the loudness of the swamp. Uh-huh. Or just like the, the anim- confusion of, and the yeah. animalism that rises up and yeah. allows them to make do make such a bad choice. And I even wrote down the fact that Sergeant Poole lets this happen is immediately karmically punished by him being shot in the head. Because yeah. what happens is yeah, they so get a little bit down the river. So they get to the perokes yeah. at minute 12 and by minute 18 they've lost the perokes. Well that's, I'm trying to s- describe yeah. what happens why they lose the canoes yeah. which is that they see the, the Cajuns and they wave to, like they, they try to signal them a, f- a few of the, the more sane guys at this moment try to communicate to them and then uh, what's his name Stucky. Stucky who's like the fucking dipshit of the group <laughs> he, he yells. Well, they call him the redneck yeah, they, they do call him the redneck, and he has, like, big sideburns and messed up teeth and everything, and... And he's he, got a real deer in headlights look. And he yells, yeah. he yells, uh, what does he say, like, parlez-vous, go fuck yourself? No, that's something? Fred Ward that that's yells Fred that. Ward. Yeah, Fred Ward yells that. He, yeah. So Fred Ward yells that, and then Stucky pulls out a gun with blanks and fires it at the Cajuns. Which and, we've had set up before. Yeah, and then I, I just, and they, they, they we, we completely forgot to mention, yeah, they, because they're doing a training exercise, all of these guys have machine guns loaded with blanks. Uh, and so the Cajuns don't know this when they're being fired at. You could yeah. substitute, or just, or like even put it in terms of, I guess, like, yeah, you, you could pretty much put any group in either thing yes. and yeah. see the way the Alamo plays out. And that idea is fleshed out yeah. in Trespass, where yeah. they go looking for gold, they, fa- they follow a map, they are in a city, and they go looking for gold, and they find themselves in an incredibly hostile area that is not welcoming to them, yeah. and that they don't belong in, and it's a predominantly black neighborhood, mm-hmm. and they get themselves in over their heads in that situation. Huh. Well. Yeah. It would be a great double billion, I think, to watch Trespass oh, and I Southern bet. Comfort. Or this and the Warriors. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you, they kind of form their own... American well, trilogy. And, yeah, and like, like I said before, the Warriors, they're not really the villains. And this they are. Which, that's thats kind of the thing that makes this allegory so interesting, is, like I said, we are seeing people, like we said, Spencer and Harden aren't really bad people, but they more or less go along with this, this group, and then they aren't truly punished for that choice, but they are more or less tied to the karmic fates of everyone else because of it. Right. And, um... But there, yeah, there is this whole element of, like, you get to see, because we experience this, they're like, oh, they're the enemy. The Cajuns, are, we, they're constantly phrasing everything. And I kind of screwed this up when I was trying to say this a minute or two ago. What I mean to say is, when we, we imagine, like, a minority re- group, we think of ourselves in any, when Americans are in any war situation, you think of the other side as the enemy. You always other 
the opposite side. We did it in World War II, we did it in Vietnam, we're still doing it now. And so the fact that the enemies in this movie, the Cajuns, are uh, more or less uh, clean through this movie. They, with like a few very specific exceptions, which we'll get to, the Cajun people, as represented in this movie, are good, harmless people who attack because a bunch of strangers showed up with machine right. guns. And I think the most sympathetic yeah. person that I find in the film is the first trapper that they come across. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and he actually has a very interesting kind of twist in his character that goes along with that later in the film um but he's the one that i think elicits the first real emotional response other than seeing peter coyote shot down but it's so quick but to how walter and that maybe that's the point that's so quick this moment of drama yet we're given so much time to find where the confusion in this uh, cajun trapper lies and i wrote down um kind of going to what you're saying, I was saying there's like a misguided loyalty to members of one group, um, which is the catalyst for their ensuing trouble. Um, people who, above all, must lay loyal to their one side, their friends, their party, how they know it, and that's and that's really, yeah. like, and that's, that's where I'm getting at that Raul Walsh sense, it's that meat and potatoes sort of cut and dry, like, this is the, this is the world of men and masculinity that we're portraying here. Mm-hmm. Whether you like it or not, it lays it up for you to just sort of decide instead of saying, oh, well, they're just complete idiots. They're not. They're confused. Yet, I think the, the film lets you kind of hit it down the middle of exactly how you want to lay your uh, sympathies. Yeah. And really quickly, since we're kind of close to, since Sergeant Poole more or less just died in our telling of the plot, I want to point out um, a connection between this and Aliens, which is that in this, after Sergeant Poole dies uh, very quickly, and in Aliens, when they go to do their initial assault, where they're all very confident, there's a character named Sergeant Apone. And Sergeant Apone is more or less in charge of the soldiers in Aliens. If you remember, he's the big cigar, he's the cigar chomping guy. He yells, he says, assholes and elbows to, uh, oh, yeah. yeah, that guy. And when he goes in, he gets, he gets taken by the aliens and the soldiers run back. And so if you remember, there's that guy, um, Gorman, who gets put in charge. And Gorman's not Paul Reiser's character. Gorman's that, like, bald military guy who Sigourney Weaver spends more or less the rest of the movie yelling at for not reacting. He's like a coward. And that's Sergeant Casper in this movie. Sergeant Casper is the second in command of the soldiers in the bayou. And when Poole dies, Casper is put in charge. And Casper throughout the whole movie, just like Gorman in Aliens, is nervous and is by the book and basically combines those two things to be totally useless. He's not confident in this position. And he he only knows what he's been told. He has at no actual understanding of the situation. And the reality of battle, uh, to some extent, is that you need to be able to improvise, to think on your feet. Yeah. Because that's the thing. The, others, the, the people who you're battling are more complicated than you want to think they are. He's the book smart archetype. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this Where, is not whereas, a, like, Keith Carradine is the street smart archetype. Yeah. yeah. One thing that I kept writing down throughout the movie is, so after they take the canoes and Sergeant Poole dies, the group is thrown into chaos. Yeah. And everyone responds differently to chaos. 
And since there's, is there eight of them or eight of them nine, left? Or nine. Nine, nine yeah. after pool dies? Okay, so there's nine people and they're all reacting to the chaos differently. But each one of them takes a moment at some point in the movie to deny blame. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, I wrote down, yeah. I wrote down one character, uh, oh, oh Stucky asks um, Fred Ward's character, Reese, he says, do you think it's my fault that this happened? And Fred Ward says, don't worry about it, it's done. Mm -hmm. And Bowden, another character at some point, he, he denies blame by saying, I don't, I don't know, I just got pissed. There's another character that says, let's just drop it, it's over with. I didn't do anything wrong. I'm not supposed oh, and, to be here. And Reese, Fred Ward, says to Stucky when Stucky says it, he says, he, well, uh, he says to Harden later about Stucky, Stucky wasn't the one that shot Poole. Trying to be like, basically saying like, I know you're mad at Stucky for firing the gun, but it's not his fault. He didn't kill Poole, which is insane logic because he <laughs> <Yeah>. started it. <laughs> yeah. they, they, they wouldn't have shot back without that. But that's, I mean, again, uh, so not to all, get too into detail, but that's a very American thing. Yeah, so they're <laughs> all trying to, like, grapple with the idea that somebody needs to be blamed for the situation that they're in, but none of them wants to shoulder the blame. Yet maybe one character. Yeah. Bowden. Yes. Yeah, and I think he, he denies it initially. And I think part of his downfall is that he starts to shoulder all of the blame. Yes, I yeah. think he psychologically splinters mm -hmm. and becomes sort of these wild stereotypes of the, the, like, uh, the insane broken. American, yeah. the yeah. insane settler. So let's get to when they, they meet the Cajun guy, because then we can get more into Bowdoin. We can kind of elaborate on that. Sure. Uh, do one of you want to set up that, or describe that scene where they meet? Sure. Yeah. So uh, the, the men that are, are left after Poole passes away, they take his body and they start traveling and they find a house in the middle of the swamp they uh, somehow see that somebody is at this, the house, and they assume immediately that that person is the person that shot Poole. And that's why I kind of wanted to, t I was trying to tie it into minorities earlier. And that's why I wanted to emphasize, I phrased it wrong initially, because think about that. They, uh, even though it's just white characters, think about they're seeing him for like, like from like hundreds, hundreds of yards of away, away through trees it's not even like a sunny day and they're like that is definitely the guy you, that's yeah. Yeah. you never really see the um, quote unquote antagonist clearly at all yeah in the movie except maybe at the end except maybe at the end yeah where... which that's not even for sure but even when he yeah, when, true, he, when he shoots pool literally uh the only like we have like a very very far away shot where we can we can tell that there are three cajun men but we don't know any more than that and then all of a sudden you see for the first time a close-up of a cajun guy holding a gun and then the next shot is pool getting shot in the head and that is the only clear shot of a Cajun man until we meet this new Cajun. Yeah. So, and, and this guy is definitely different, but it's also so brief that you have no context the for who The shot doesn't really register as a deep importance to, like, yeah. here you are going to study the face of this guy. Yeah, the bullet registers, but the, the man yeah. doesn't. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so they decide they're going to approach the house and kidnap or, like, uh, capture, I guess is a better word. The Interrogate. The trapper that they yeah. see. So they split into teams. Sergeant Casper, you know, designates them to each to a role. And then 
Bowman, Bowden, this one of the soldiers, he is clearly very upset that Poole got killed. And so he decides to forego the instructions that he was given and charge forward to capture the trapper immediately, like without the rest of the group. So they all come up. It's they, clumsy feeling. Yeah, yeah, it's very impulsive. Yeah. And so he gets to the trapper. The whole rest of the group follows him because they're like, what the fuck is going on? They get to him and they're like, Bowden, what are you doing? Anyway, they tie up the trapper because they, they find out that he doesn't speak any English, which is actually a mislead. But, okay, so he claims he doesn't speak any English. <laughs> then Bowden, I can't remember the specifics, but he, like, sneaks away. Well, they, find, he, they find the house has supplies they need. It has uh, ammo, ammo, dynamite. Dynamite, things that they could use to survive. Yeah, yeah things that they can use to defend themselves. Right. And uh, while they're trying to figure out what to do with the trapper, Bowden sneaks into the trapper's house, creates like a... He, well, first, he paints a... Somehow he gets red paint. There's a, just an open uh, can of paint. Yeah, so he, he paints on his chest a, a, a red cross. So he, like, rips his shirt open, paints a red cross, and then he creates a, a Molotov cocktail. Yeah. Uh, and then he uses it to uh, explode the Trapper's house. And they, <laughs> this is the thing, this is one of the moments where I was like, okay, for the most part, like we said, this movie is very straightforward, but there's a couple things in this movie that were genuinely vague enough to kind of merit further consideration. And after um, Bowden blows up this house, people are like, what the fuck are you doing, Bowden? And and they're like, why did you paint the red cross on your chest? And he was like, it's part of the joke. And then later he says... That's a great line. And yeah, and then later he says something about the avenging angel and then just kind of trails off and doesn't explain it further. But both of those two things make me wonder, uh, like, is... Like, what Did you guys have an immediate reaction as to what that was or referring to it felt like war paint to me it felt like a crusades reference oh definitely like, well yeah, in charlotte like in history in charlemagne they painted red crosses on white flags yeah i mean to bring yeah. up another meme well, uh, it made me think of the French. it made me think of the deus volt meme uh god wills it uh <laughs> i think that's the joke that he's yeah. referring to in all honesty probably yeah yeah, well, because they think that they're in the right, and so they're charging into battle with this red cross on, on their chest. So, yeah, maybe that's what the uh, Walter Hill is alluding to. And is it is it that before or after he blows up the house where he start where Bowden starts insisting that he didn't panic? It's after. after. It's after, and that's a big thing. I, I think we, we haven't mentioned this. Yeah, out, we didn't mention. But that. when during after Poole gets shot, the, what leads them all ending up on in the forest is that Bowden immediately panics and begins knocking over all of the canoes in his attempts to get to Poole's body. And so all of them are flipped. The the brokes, the canoes, whatever. They, they lose the They canoes. sink or float downstream or something. And some people, someone says to him, "You panicked, and that's why we're here." And so him saying, "Ironically, it's Stucky that says Stucky it." Stucky says it. But he when he's when when Bowden says, "I didn't panic," he's not. No one has brought that up. 
And so he's clearly, like, starting to obsess. He's operating within himself, and yeah. I think all the members of this are operating within themselves and just projecting towards one another. Oh, yeah. As soon as... Until we see Peter Coyote and Keith Carradine start to actually communicate more. And we can get You to didn't mean Peter Coyote. Not Peter Coyote, Powers Booth. Yeah. Yep, there you go. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I think it, the t- real turning point is when Bowden blows up that uh, that house, because that is when they stop functioning as a team. Yeah. Or as a squad, or whatever they call, a unit, whatever they call themselves. They really stop thinking of, like, how can we work together to get out of this? It's more like, how can I survive with yes. these other people yeah. exactly. that are here with me? Uh-huh. Um, I mean, yeah. And that is another thing about group dynamics that is very worthwhile to explore. Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, like I said, in chaos, everybody... That's why they always have those emergency instructions in airplanes and, you know, things like that where they're like, stay calm, you know, yeah. follow the instructions of the people who are telling you what to do. Because you need to have that one... Or those, those designated people... To keep everyone from panicking. And these are supposed to be men who are equipped to handle mentally situations such as these. And they're not even... And maybe that says something about they're ill-prepared because they're on their own soil. That's the most interesting thing to me that I keep coming back to is they're not in a foreign country. Right. They are on their own soil. They are so fucking close to... Roads yeah, and they, rail. <laughs> yeah, they're actively like the express. They're like in a it's, swamp, but they're like the expressway is north. It's north. nightmare. Yeah, <laughs> it's like hallucinatory nightmare. A, yeah. None of them had a compass. <laughs> yeah, none of them had a compass. They're incredibly <laughs> ill-prepared people, and I think that that and they lose a lot when the when the when the boats yeah, the they lose canoe sinks. Everything. Yeah, they yeah. lose their radio, the map. Yeah, but if you remember, not only does Harden not lose his cigarettes. But Cribs doesn't lose his weed because there's that scene where he's smoking and Bowden comes up to him and says, that stuff kills your will to win. Which uh, Bowden's nickname is Coach, and I feel like that's the only time in the whole movie where he lives up to Coach. Oh, yeah, yeah. he feels, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, props, you gotta keep your weed and cigarettes close. Yeah. <laughs> Let's be real, yeah. Well, and, and Casper even creates a makeshift grenade, but he doesn't make a makeshift compass. Like, you can make a compass. (laughs) And the grenade does nothing. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so... So they they explode the trapper's house. Then they uh, tie up the trapper, and they decide to take him with them as they try to get out of the swamp. Prisoner of war. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and they're not even in a war. Exactly. They're in a swamp. (laughs) Yeah, As um, you mentioned, in America. In their home, yeah. <laughs> yeah, in their home state. Like, yeah. all of them are, except for Hardin, all of them are from Louisiana. Right, yeah. So they are, like, should at least have a fringe familiarity with the idea of, like, Cajun people. Yeah. Or swamp life. <laughs> sure. I or, thought, well, it could say something to the degree at which there's separation, segregation in their own. Like, oh, they're sure. completely unfamiliar with this area. Yeah. Because they seem like... When they get to the town, they do not seem like they are familiar with this at all. No. No, definitely not. This is like an alien... That, that's where they almost step into foreign territory. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, everybody there doesn't speak English. Exactly. Uh, so they they start walking and they discover things like 
bear traps in the swamp. As uh, as Reese just says, looks just like a steel pussy when he sees the bear trap <laughs> and then sticks a stick into it, which is instantly like bitten in half. Uh, yeah. yeah, and the guy says, "What kind of women have you been sleeping?" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they also that's uh, that's when they run into the hunting dogs. Yes. And that is like a very strange scene because the dogs come, attack them, and then leave. And they kind of, I mean, for me, for the rest of the movie, they don't really act like anyone got attacked by a dog. If you get attacked by a dog, you are maimed. Like, you can't, like, I remember in a later scene, um, Cribs, the uh, T.K. Carter's character, yeah. he is carrying Poole's body, even though he got maimed in the arms by <laughs> <Yeah>. dog bites. <laughs> the dogs kind of vanish like ghosts back into the swamp, which yeah. I think is really yeah. interesting. Yeah, it's almost like a swamp hallucination. I, there's a lot of hallucinatory points. I mean, okay, so they're they're walking with, with the, the prisoner. They're, they're encountering these traps. Um... There's a scene where Fred Ward is attempting to interrogate the, the yeah. trapper. Oh, yeah. And it's it's not really much of an interrogation as it is just straight torturing this guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that, to me, is... An inc- we're talking about hallucinatory swamp shit. That is an incredible scene of mist. Like, there's something incredibly dreamlike about how Powers Booth slowly approaches... Because um, it's foggy. It's foggy, and there. Before we get close to them, they're enough in the distance where you're like, "Is he dunking this guy's head in the in the?" It's like yeah. it, there's a. It's kind of obscured. Well, and even when they finally show the close up of him dunking his head, I don't know if you caught it, but the shot is looped. Uh, like when he pulls, like Fred Ward pulls the trapper's head out, and then it loops so that it pushes it back in. And so it oh, like it does like I instead of it pulling that. him all the way out and stopping and putting him back in, it's like this like uh, continuous motion of up and down right into the puddle. And so it does it continue. Mm. It just feels yeah, you're right. It does feel very strange. And there's no dialogue right yeah. away either. So you're just kind of having to slowly figure all this stuff out visually. Yeah, that kind of recalls something like of like a David Lynch how in um, we'll just go with Fire Walk with me. Uh, <laughs> How he plays things backwards. How people seemingly normal movements are then walking backwards. So I think, and then it becomes alien. Yeah. So I didn't even catch that, but I think it added. I think unconsciously it added something to me of that dunking scene because I found that to be an incredibly disturbing scene. Yeah. Well, and there's. I mean, there's. It's. It's very important too. I feel like it's important uh, to some degree. The allegory that this is the scene where Hardin chooses to kill what is broadly his teammate uh, to protect this trapper who he has just met. Uh, who pumps venom into him. Yeah, yeah. And he, like at this up to this point, it's been assumed that there's a language barrier where like he doesn't understand what they're saying, they don't understand what he's saying, and then that breaks for him to yell, kill him to Hardin, and Hardin uh, does... It, it's not... It, well, he, I yeah. think he's interestingly caught in, this motherfucker just speak English? Yeah. <laughs> and also, like, he's so caught up that there's something um, very ambiguous about the way he stabs Fred Ward. He does it, obviously, to survive, but it's how he hesitates and yeah. lets the reverberation of what um, the trapper says kind of sink into him. And he takes a while before he actually stabs him. 
Yeah. Well, I, I think that goes back to the fact that he's not a soldier first. Yeah. He's oh, yeah. a chemical engineer or yeah. whatever he says he is first, and then soldier second. He doesn't believe in the rules of war as they are. Right. He even so. says, like, oh, I just, I'm the new guy. I'm going to stay back and shut up, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah, because he clearly knows that he is not ascribing to this way of life. I mean, for whatever reason, he's found himself in this position. But he seems to be completely removed from that. He has that kind of Western, um, I guess, protagonist mentality. Yeah. I can't remember when this scene happens, but uh, there's a scene where Powers Booth or, or Hardin, he pulls aside Keith Carradine's character and he says... I need you to tell me what the fuck is going on. Mm -hmm. And Keith Carradine says, what are you talking about? And he's like, well, let me lay it out for you. I was doing this, and now I'm here on this exercise, and now we're getting killed by Cajuns and each other? What the fuck is going on? Because he's really grappling with how he got in this situation in the first place. Right. And I can't remember when that happens in the context of the movie, like how many people have died. <laughs> it's no. it's actually only Poole has died by the point that Wow, that yeah. okay. So he is having that very quickly after one person has died. And by the time that Hardin kills Reese, two people have died. Yeah. Because well, Reese well, no, is the third person to die. Yeah, because Cribs dies. Very briefly, uh, there's this very... There's a, in retrospect, it's funnier the second time. The first time you don't catch this, but Cribs uh, is more or less like uh, he's not a very prominent character. He has that scene where he's smoking weed and he reveals that he sells weed to children. Yeah, and like, like high school students. Like that. That's something. Yeah, the high school students. But that's like the most we know about his backstory. So he's not like a character who's supposed to feel a lot about. Which could have been misdirection. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, because he even says like, I don't even know if you're lying to me. So it kind of implies maybe he just fucks with him. Yeah, that's true, yeah. yeah. But um, Casper makes him, uh, makes them lead the group through the bayou, and Cribs immediately is like, damn, Casper, I don't see why I'm on point. And then, like, seconds later, <laughs> he walks into, like, one of those cradle spike traps where a big grid of wood shoots up and has just pointed sticks. It's very Indiana Jones. Yeah, and it goes right yeah. into Cribs. Like, I, it seems like he gets, like, impaled in, like, five or six places and dies, like, right yeah, there. Yeah, he dies instantly. And when he dies, that's when they stop carrying the bodies. That's when they're, like, yeah. they bury them. Well, they they're realize like, we're not going to carry two bodies. Well, and they realize they're trapped. Yeah. They realize yeah. that there are people who are actually more familiar with the territory and smarter than them in this scenario. And they realize that, yeah, we could all walk into a fucking spike trap if we're not careful. Yeah. Well, and I think that's also when Bowden finally really breaks. Because that's when he is saying the prayer and he can't even finish he it. He can't finish the prayer. And then yeah. that night he stops talking completely or responding to anyone. Uh-huh. And then they end up tying him up with yeah. the trapper. So it's a real... When, when Cribs dies... Even though his death is very sudden and kind of, like, glazed over pretty quickly, uh, it's a real turning point for the group. Yeah. Well, that's when it becomes, like, more of a literal nightmare. Yeah. They discover more traps. They yeah. are running for their lives. 
and then, yeah, right around here is where a few more of... We start to see the Cajuns more. Like, we don't see them closer, but we can see that they're get, they're stalking the soldiers. They're You're getting, talking about when the trees start falling down? Yeah, there's, like, yeah. You, you see them, like, I think right before the trees fall down is that moment where Sims thinks he sees somebody. Which is brilliant. Yeah. Because I would love to rewatch that again and that first part and see if... Because... If, he cuts, like, the way that they move through the trees for a long time, you're really just catching, like, legs. Like, yeah. limbs yeah. kind of disappearing behind trees. Yeah. Like, half of a shirt. Uh-huh. And you're, like, when you first see it, you start to think, oh, this guy, here's the traditional scene where the guy's cracking up. Yeah. And he's seeing things. But no, he's he saw something. Yeah. And then they realize they're completely surrounded. Yeah. That's also when they run into... So, when, after Cribs dies and Reese dies... They bury all the bodies, and when right. Sims starts seeing people, that's when they run into the bodies again. It's kind yeah. of a horror movie at that point. Yeah, that's yeah. really and, spooky. And right? honestly, that was the one moment in the movie where the Cajuns did something that is like kind of goes beyond just like, these guys are attacking us, we have to defend ourselves. And But at the same time... Uh, to a certain extent, you can maybe even, if you're going to try to see it from their point of view, it could be that these people have just shown up on their, their land and are shooting machine guns at them, and they don't know why, but they're invading, and then they're not only are they invading, but they're, like, burying their dead on their land. Mm. And so, I, I, I feel like you could, given the way in which, how, lit, how, how the Cajuns are set up, it could even be that these guys are, were dug up as like get these guys out of here and they're they're positioned here but they aren't they aren't gruesomely displayed or anything they're just sure. kind of like propped up together yeah. and so it is like a horror movie moment for the soldiers but we don't know why they're there otherwise well and, and also that kind of like defies logic but the movie is kind of uh, suspends time in a very interesting way yeah where clearly they obviously i mean they were able to dig up these bodies, then get in front of the soldiers and then prop them up. So it says something about where the soldiers might be walking, how they might be yeah. walking in circles. Yeah, actually, well, okay, we're really close to this moment, so relating to the walking in circles thing, very soon there, we get to a moment where Casper and Sims, and Sims is uh, basically, I, I, I think we mentioned him before, he's the one that thinks he sees somebody, but for the most part, Sims doesn't do too much. But Sims and Casper get separated, and they are clearly, like, going... They're basically, like, the way it's filmed, you can tell, like, this is their turn to, to die. And <laughs> Casper ends up going... They somehow end up splitting up, and Casper ends up running with the bayonet directly at, like, three of the Cajun men. And they, they shoot him, and then it cuts to Sims, and Sims somehow runs directly to that same spot from a different angle mm -hmm. which all because i with the way it's filmed you're under the impression at least i was under the impression that sims is running away trying to run back to the other group and he just does somehow make a, a circle so there is a lot of that where it does seem like they they're it's like almost like the blair witch where they just are so lost yeah, yeah, that they yeah. just keep retracing their steps yeah. they, amazed to some degree yeah they split up because they're looking for stucky because Stucky saw the helicopter. Oh yeah, and well, I thought they all saw the helicopter, but Stucky chases. Stucky after. chases after chases it, and the Stucky yeah. ends up in some quicksand. Stucky gets Stucky. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't think about yeah. it that way. <laughs> um, 
which was a very interesting... That was an incredible scene that I'd kind of forgotten about, um, to which I want to make a reference point to, I think, um, you can find a lot of comparison in Walter Hill to someone like Samuel Fuller. Yeah. The way oh, this yeah. movie starts, starts very blunt. It just moves into it. That scene, in turn, recalls a scene um, from a film he did called Run of the Arrow, which involves a character getting stuck in quicksand while they're trying to call for help, but they're, the help is within distance, yeah. yet something is muffling their calls for help. Huh. Um, and it's it, it has an eerie resemblance to Run of the Arrow. And I wouldn't be surprised if Walter Hill loves Samuel Fuller. Yeah, they're both similarly like pulpy. And especially this movie, because the plot, briefly, of Run of the Arrow is about Confederate soldiers after the war. And how they do not want to give up the war. Yeah. Oh. Hmm. Yeah. A little interesting. I'm adding that to my watch list. My uh, Samuel Fuller watch list. That's a great one. Um, so yeah, then they find, they call out, the guy goes down the quicksand, and then we're at the point where they, the guess the other members kind of just vanish. Like, everybody kind of just vanishes at this point, and Powers Booth and Keith Carradine are suddenly off on their own. And Bowden. And Bowden. And Bowden. Yeah. Everyone, yeah, Bowden. Everyone's everyone dead. else yeah, dies. Everyone dies. Yeah. By the trees. Um, and probably getting shot. And it's quicksand. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so then they get, they there's that kind of like, incredibly like breath of fresh air moment where they realize, well they have, well they have the moment where they talk to each other. Which is the most, in the movie anybody's ever really communicated with. Yeah, them. that's yeah. the most dialogue at once. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Where they're not fighting. They're not fighting. They're actually trying to, like, find um, humor with each other. They're trying to find hope with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, scenes that could become really corny and obvious quick, yet Hill sort of undercuts them all. I yeah. thought that, that scene is really well lit, too. It's incredibly well. I think Hill, I think I was saying this to you, was I think Hill is kind of a master of lighting darkness. I think that, mm-hmm. and with film, that's hard to do. And I think he, especially with films like 48 Hours, <laughs> Red Heat, there are some I moments... Think, in, I always think of Streets of Fire, because Streets, oh, Streets of Fire yeah, is yeah, shot yeah, yeah, entirely yeah. in like a, a, a studio, well, like a big set with like a, a tarp over it so they could film at night. Uh, well, film during oh, the day. The nights, Warriors. Yeah, the oh, Warriors, yeah. The whole thing's a fucking night. Yeah. yeah. Um, trespass, that's all at night. Yeah. For the most part. Um, so... There's that, then they find the train, and I guess that's where they come across. Okay, yeah. So it's they basically they they fall asleep. They fall asleep. They wake up the next morning to discover that where they've camped out is like feet from train tracks, and so <laughs> they run to the train tracks, and at, there's like again this like eerie fog, like smoke, very smoky fog, just like you can see it moving through the air as they run and they run to the train tracks and it clears enough where in and the camera kind of pans down and we see Bowden hanging from a noose and it plays it plays really wonderfully because you do kind of assume he killed himself initially but then there's this very bizarre edit where it's you the train there's a train running on the tracks and the train is gone 
and then the and then the uh, the trapper from before the one that they captured who escaped is just there. Like, he's actually the first replica in Blade Runner. Yeah, he's the guy. Who yeah, Kowalski. The, the Voight, yeah. The Voight Kampf test. From he's the also yeah. uh, just a little another little nerd reference. He's also uh, one of the military commanders in the Fifth Element. Brian James. <laughs> he's in a lot of stuff. He's a, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's another great, bad he's guy. He's a great character. Yeah. yeah. There's something so unpretentious about him as an actor. Mm-hmm. That I find there's a simpleness to him that I'm gonna say this, you might think I'm crazy. Kind of reminds me to some degree of someone like Gary Cooper, who does not uh, have a Oh, uh, I love Gary Cooper. Yeah, he doesn't he's kind of an everyman, but not in the way that Jimmy Stewart is. Yeah. Yeah. He's like he has a very plain, blunt, and simple, which goes into I think Walter Hill's style of filmmaking. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so he worked with him a couple times. Uh, this guy, Brian. Oh yeah, Brandon. I think I think he's in Forty Eight Hours. No, he's or maybe he's in another Forty Eight Hours. A, yeah, it's <laughs> definitely in another Forty Eight Hours. I looked him up. He's definitely worked with Walter Hill a couple times. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember the specifics. Yeah. But um, so Harden and Spencer see the trapper standing on the train tracks, and he has a shotgun. He's aiming it at them with his one good arm, and he speaks English. He reveals that he can actually speak fluent English. And he tells them more or less, like, you can go this way to town, and you, I, and more, it's clearly implicated, I don't remember if he says it in so many words, that they are spared because they did not, they, they tried to keep him from being beaten, they treated him well, yeah, like a human. One of the, one of the things that we didn't mention is Keith Carradine Pretty soon, uh, probably like uh, uh, a couple hours after they capture the trapper, he tries to convince Casper, Sergeant Casper, for uh, to let him release the trapper. Right. Yeah. And so the trapper probably remembered that, and then Powers Booth's character kills someone so that the trapper can escape. Yeah. And so they, yeah, they both get a free pass. But I want to go back to. The edit that you talked about where there's a train and then all of a sudden there's not a train and there's the trapper. Yeah. That, I think, may be intentional to bleed into what John's been saying about the, like, dream hallucinatory effect of the swamp. Yeah. I think that that's really effective. Well, yeah, and yeah. also, and Walter Hill is the he king actually is of, in another 48 hours. Walter, yeah, <laughs> Walter Hill is the king of efficiency. And, mm-hmm. like, it's storytelling, um, just, like, shots and editing and stuff like that. Right. And I feel like having the train clear the shot and then having a one-armed man, like, yeah, get yeah, to the yeah. top of the train tracks and then pull out the gun, he's, not his thing. He wants him there. Yeah. yeah. He's also the villain in Red Heat. Oh, yeah, there we go. Oh, okay, cool. Okay. Good. We have to look forward to. So they escape. They escape from the trapper, or not escape, but they are basically told like, "Hey, get out of here!" So they yeah. they run towards somewhere. They run in the direction he tells them to run, and they find a road. They see a a truck, and then this is when we're almost at the end of the movie. So yeah. they see a truck. They run towards the truck. The truck stops. It's um, a Cajun couple, and in the back of their truck, they have two cages with giant hogs, giant pigs uh, in each cage. Which we're going to see later. Yes, (laughs) which is important to know. Mm -hmm. And um, basically, they talk to the Cajun couple. The Cajun couple says, yeah, sure, we'll give you a ride into town. And they get driven into this, basically, swamp village. Yeah. For lack of a better word. Something out of a different time. Something out of an old western. Yeah, and and both uh, soldiers are like, this is not what we meant by going to a village. We wanted a telephone 
or a street lamp. They like <laughs> literally get transported into the western that yeah. they are not <laughs> yeah. yeah. And the Cajun couple's like, oh, don't worry about it. Stay here. Have a drink. Eat some food. Like dance. Uh, the first liquid they've had in a while. Yeah. yeah. And again, to, to go back to my earlier point, like, when we fight, like, the whole movie, the Cajuns have been hidden from us. We get little uh, brief glimpses of them as antagonists. This is the way that we yeah. are told to see them based on the characters we are following. And so when we are finally taken to Cajun Town, as I wrote in my notes, <laughs> it is not just a bunch of people. It's not like in if this was a noir and they showed up in this town, every or let's say if, if this was Bad Day at Black Rock, everyone would be eyeing yes, Carradine, but them. nobody is suspicious yeah, of them. Nobody they don't give a shit. Offer them food, offer them drink, give them a place to wash up. Like, they go to wash their house in somebody's house, and the people are just playing cards, and they're like, I, they have no idea who they are, but they're like, yeah, go wash your hands over there. Uh, that woman comes up to Keith Carradine and is like, dance with me. Like, they are as accepting as possible, and everyone, it's like... But it's um, us, the audience, that's suspicious, as well as powers. But I'm just, I'm just saying, to tie into my point about, like, thinking about... Uh, Othering. Uh, think about the allegory of these people who we've seen as the antagonists are, like, so full of life and joy, and not just, like, the, the, when they're not around, but even when these soldiers are around, there's this sense of community and yeah. happy. It takes this and family. There's music and it everything. It takes on yeah. like a documentary quality, something yeah. like a less blank documentary. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, you're just like they just suddenly. Need some women. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You can smell the the crawfish boil going. Like it's uh, well, it, yeah, and that and so Keith Carradine's like, calm down, dude. Like we're safe. Uh, don't be paranoid and power powers booths like yeah right uh, okay right you know and rolls his eyes and he looks out the window and he sees two people roll up in a canoe and get out and he's like they I look swampy they yeah. look real swampy and yeah. he's like i don't trust those swampy people and keith carradine's like you don't know what they look like you know calm down and then the next i really loved this because it plays into the audience's paranoia, but Powers Booth sees incredibly, yeah, sees these two characters throwing nooses over, yeah. like a really tall bar, and they're two nooses, not yeah. one, two, and you're like, oh man, they're gonna get hung, yeah. you know, they're gonna die, they're yeah. gonna get. You know, maybe all these Cajun people are having this party because they know that two soldiers are Yeah, maybe are it's a wicker to... man situation. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah, who knows? <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, as the audience member, you're like, oh, shit, what's going to happen? And and they could be just hanging the pigs, actually. I yeah. think they're just yeah, hanging that, the that pigs. That's what yeah. they did. Yeah. Yeah. And it, honestly, it took me until watching it this time to put that together, that those yeah. nooses had nothing to do with them. Like, yeah. And it's like, they're and just again, for the pigs, again, like, bleeding out the pigs. Really just underlining how much the Cajuns, besides the ones that are hunting them, don't give a shit about them. Yeah. Like these people don't negatively affect their lives at all, and so they have they have no ill will against them. Right. Yeah. So, so, oh, yeah. go ahead. Go for it. No, no, no. Go for it. Well, I, and and this is where I the thing I really want to talk about is this final scene because I think that it's incredibly masterful. One of the best things Walter Hill has probably ever shot. The cutting really underlies the paranoia. The oh, cutting yeah. is so exact and precise and splintered. I kept thinking, what is this reminding me of? And I finally figured it out. It reminds me of Straw Dogs. <laughs> Sam Peckinpah. Oh. It reminds me. They've worked together. And they worked the getaway. Yeah. And I know that he saw Peckinpah 
director of the Wild Bunch, as a um, as a mentor. And I feel like this scene is really indebted to Peck and Paw's Straw Dogs mm. because, well, we're getting some slow motion. One, <laughs> oh yeah, where uh, this cross cutting is so um, razor sharp, like in the Indian of Straw Dogs when they are fighting locals in a this area that is unfamiliar to them and they're having to uh, result to violence, incredibly brutal violence. Bear traps are yeah. also involved. Yeah, God, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And oh, man. We're, we're and there's a town hall celebration And there's going animals on. hung. And there's animals yeah. hung. Yeah, wow, God, yeah, you're right. I think it's there's a major connection to straw dogs with that ending. Yeah. Wow. Well, and the, the thing I really like about this last sequence is how they play the music in tandem with what's happening to the soldiers. Like, there's this community scene happening regardless of what's happening to the two soldiers. Like, you know, people are dancing, playing the accordion. You know, there's this... Everybody's clapping their hands and having a great time and passing around food while these two soldiers are being hunted down in the back alleyways of their village. And we should also mention... Carrie pointed out the two pigs that are on the back of the truck that they ride in on. So intercut with the the, the Cajuns hunting uh, the two soldiers are these pigs being killed. Gutted. Uh, well, so first they're shot in the head. And that's why we emphasize these are live pigs that you watch die on screen. Yeah. Uh, so you see, you see them both get shot in the head and then you see a close-up uh, uh-huh. intercut at some point of... The knife going to the pig's throat and the pig kicking as the blood At least comes you see the out. Pig get its legs shot out. Yeah, you get you get you get. Oh, seen. and you will, and they slit it down the middle, and yeah. its guts fall out. Yeah, it's it's. But this is intercut with these men being hunted by the cage. It's very um, very clear. Again, recalling Peck and Paw yeah. Straw Dogs, where the the famous infamous rape scene in that film uh. that cuts between them hunting birds. Yeah, yeah, wow, yeah. God, this is it's a strong. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and you could even go with the wild bunch with the kids yeah. torturing the uh, the scorpion. My man, yeah. Honestly, like I, it's amazing how much this does seem to build off of because I had this in my mind as like somewhere like a mix of the warriors and aliens, but with elements of apocalypse now. Like I saw the pig being killed is similar to the ending of Apocalypse Now where the, yeah, the bison yeah. is sacrificed cut with Martin Sheen, spoiler alert, killing Marlon Brand. Yeah, so except we don't get other... any doors on this. We get some <laughs> sick-ass Cajun yeah. music. Yeah. But also, the other movie, like to just go completely away from everything else we were talking about, is I thought of Jerry. Gus Van Zandt's Jerry during this a lot. Especially because we have our two quippy men who are lost in the wilderness. And granted, they're with a group as opposed to Jerry, which is just the two of them. But it does have that existential quality of like the total helplessness and like, and, and uh, but it is able to do that while playing this like masculine and they're uh, close to Rhodes. Yeah. Yeah. All yeah. the, like all and these, they're close <laughs> to yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but like this movie really, it's like, it's deceptively simple. Like it's, yes. it, it's, it is, or I, I guess I should say deceptively complex because it is, it, it hides so much under the surface and there's this allegory is so tightly constructed that it a lot it, it can really fit into a many different things it's just i don't know I, I i just all the different movies that we can connect this to and compare it to but at the same time it doesn't just seem like cliche or second run or just like a rehash 
I, I well, anyway, we should, let's just wrap up the, we have like, what, two minutes of the movie left to yeah. explain. So, so basically they get chased by the, the cages that have been hunting them. Powers Booth gets shot once and Keith Carradine dis- well, oh. No, 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 I'm sorry. Uh, he gets shot in the, what is it, like his shoulder? Yeah. And he falls down, and the Cajun's about to shoot him again, and Keith Carradine comes in with his machine gun that's full of blanks, shoots the Cajun with the blanks as basically a distraction, and while that's happening, Powers Booth uh, stabs the Cajun guy in the dick. Yep. And Kind of he... like how the pigs are gutted from the growing up. Yeah! yeah. Oh, good parallel. Yeah. Uh, and so... I assume that that guy died, but he's at least maimed that... He bled out. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. He definitely bled out. (laughs) There's some big, like, blood arteries right there. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. (laughs) He didn't live much longer. (laughs) And if he did, he he lived a terrible life. Yeah, Um, yeah. But, so, Keith Carradine then sees that two more Cajuns are coming, and he runs. They chase him for a while. He evades them. Then he puts the, what's that thing called when you put on the end of your gun that's like a knife? Bayonet. Bayonet. Thank you. Uh, He puts on his bayonet and he waits for the Cajuns. And they come through and they're they're so far away he can't do anything with his bayonet. And so he's kind of just like standing there. The bayonet is kind of pointless and it kind of is an interesting maybe uh, comparison to the Civil War. Mm. that we're seeing because it is kind of a civil war yeah maybe it's another nod to samuel fuller with southern fixed bayonets. yeah yeah <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. southern yeah exactly that title of the film when you really reflect on it is a, quite a brilliant title yeah, yeah. they yeah. had to uh ask permission to make sure they could get the, that to be the title originally this was called the prey yeah boo that's yeah it's not a good a, yeah. as good of a title oh, yeah because you really get that southern comfort at the yeah, yeah 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 yeah, but the liquor people had to give them permission. They're uh, like, oh, this is our drink name. I don't know if you can name a movie this. Yeah. Oh, but they got the okay. Yeah. But anyway. anyway, okay, so he's standing there with the bayonet. He sees the Cajun. The Cajun's just about to shoot him. And Powers Booth comes from behind and, and uh, grabs him. And then Keith Carradine bayonets him in the stomach, what, what like three or four times? And then they escape. Uh, now, I'm Seemingly. Simple- I'm uh, simplifying because what happens is they leave, they walk out of uh, the building and they're about to walk out of the village and they see a helicopter. And then, does someone else want to take over? Um, well, they see the truck. <laughs> yeah. Right. So they see a truck. A U.S. Army truck that does not seem to be driven by a U.S. Army man. Yeah, it's it looked kind of like a swampy Cajun driving it. Yeah, now, I I you know maybe you know higher resolution you could see a little bit better. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But, but it did seem kind of like it. Maybe it was supposed to be a um, an army guy, but it kind of gives you the idea because nothing is shown very carefully. Yeah. I was under the impression that, like, the reason that the the very last shot of the movie is a white star, I thought they were trying to say that, like, until they saw that white star, they had no idea whether they were safe or not. Because 
the helicopter, they'd seen the helicopter before, it didn't mean anything. They've seen a truck before on the road and approached it, and that didn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. But the, seeing that white star, it's like the end. Like the end of, the movie starts with them getting leaving to get lost in the bayou, and the star is the official moment where they are not lost anymore. Exactly. Yeah. They're kind of their guiding star. Yeah. But also has a very eerie ring to it, like the end of like the deer hunter or something like that. Yeah. That kind of makes you think that like, maybe they're going to get rescued here. Maybe there's another swamp <laughs> guy who's going to come get them before the... We'll never come, like, know. We'll never know. But the story has definitely reached its conclusion yeah. at this point. But it is kind of an unsettling ending in an incredibly ambiguous way that I, I, I still am kind of grappling with. Yeah, there's a lot to like, a lot to consider, a lot to that the movie forces wants you to extrapolate, but you don't need to extrapolate it to make sense of the movie itself. Yeah, well, their their savior symbol is the star of the United States. Yeah, and again, we're in the United States. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're still here in the United States. So says something, uh, yeah, about the divisions yeah. of the United States. I was trying to figure out if the number on the truck had any significance whatsoever. But it didn't yeah. seem like it. I don't it. think so, yeah. All right. Uh, well, Carrie, I see that you have a shitload of trivia, so. <laughs> we, oh, yeah, yeah, but, I mean. Get, go through some highlights. If there's a few things that you well, know is really okay, good. Well, okay, so one of the, th- I, I wrote down some quotes of Walter Hill, and this one, I think, was very applicable to this movie. But as John mentioned, Walter Hill views kind of all of his movies as kind of westerns. And he said that part of the reason that he likes Westerns is the Western is untimely, is ultimately a stripped down moral universe that Mm. is beyond the normal avenues of social control and alleviation. And I think that that's true. Like in a Western, it's very like the the moral judgment, it, it really is, okay, you have to fend for yourself, but you also have a moral obligation to, you know, like, defend your brother or right. protect the group or whatever the yeah. case may be in the specific Western. And I think there are a lot of power dynamics that are very easy to play with in a Western setting. Yeah. Law and order is not absolute either. Yeah, you and I have talked about Johnny Guitar. That one I yeah, know. Yeah, Osana's Raid. This yeah. The one that we always talk about, yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, that's a great movie. That's actually, I could see a lot of comparisons. Yeah, I, we haven't seen it recently enough to yeah. a- adequately talk about it, but it's, yeah, it's it's one that comes up just... It's well, and it falls in line our... with Robert Aldrich. I think yeah. he's kind of fixed, fits in with a lot of his films. I run, a little bit of trivia. Robert Aldrich was going to direct Alien, originally wow and uh something to the degree of he had first suggested that the alien be um a shaved monkey of sorts (laughs) um now they probably would have gone a little more past that at some point but they just did not want robert aldrich the studio did not want robert aldrich to well i also read that walter hill was supposed to direct alien at a certain point so there were a lot of people in line that just fell right off yeah, I think, yeah. How did they choose, how did they choose Ridley Scott fresh off The Duelists to direct Alien? Like, the, his his debut know. feature, as far as I remember, is nothing like Alien in any way. Like well, I remember <laughs> Walter Hill did not want to make the film after a while. I think he voluntarily stepped away from Alien. Sure. And, you know, however Ridley Scott got involved, maybe they thought, like, a younger director, we can control him a bit more. Yeah. Maybe he was friends with one of the cast. 
True. I mean, well, yeah, and this is the time where both the Scott brothers are kind of coming up in yeah. the American cinema, like, very rapidly, too. Yeah. Uh, I also wanted to touch on what you said about this being an, alle- like, you've, you've heard that this is an allegory for the Vietnam War. Uh, Walter Hill has, has very avidly denied that comparison. I even found that at the cast read for Southern Comfort, he told the entire cast, he said, people are going to say that this is about Vietnam. They can say whatever they want, but I don't want to hear another word about it. So he, like, he told everyone, look, I understand that there's parallels here, but that's not the movie we're making. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that that's, that was a very smart move on his part, because I think if he had tried to play into that, I don't know if this movie would have worked as well. You'd hem it in too much, and it would lose all yeah. of its, um, its uh, scope and its ambiguity. Yeah. And I think a good director knows that. Yeah. Yeah, I think, and I think he's a good director. <laughs> I think he's a good director too. <laughs> uh, I found out this movie was shot in nine weeks, um, and they did six day work weeks. Did you see the thing that they said? Part of the difficulty of shooting in the bayou was that every time they would set up the camera on the it tripod, it would sink. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh my god! So that's why all the shots are really short. Yeah, but or it's, they did a lot of like up from above. Shots. I don't know. It's it. You. I don't think. I feel like you can't really tell. Like it doesn't seem no. to have affected the movie in any way. It's so. It's really impressive. Like yeah. I was saying, the technical part of this movie of like shooting in a swamp, that is crazy. He pulled impressive. it off. He definitely pulled it off. Yeah. Right? Yeah, the if there is anything wrong with this movie, it's not the shots. No. This movie looks great. Actually, I don't really think there's anything <laughs> wrong with this movie. There's just uh... well, your criticisms of of it that you thought were like something that you were at odds with, I think are part of the tension of the yeah. movie. Yeah, and I, I uh, like my frustration with the characters comes out of like my need for rational behavior, but rational behavior doesn't make for a good movie. Sure, yeah. And so I recognize that like my criticisms are just like my wish that sure. people behaved better. But Keith Carradine <laughs> wants that rationality too. Yeah, yeah. And, but at the same time, I can't. I I was looking for someone in the group to relate to, and I am a combination of Keith Carradine and Powers Booth. I'm not one or the other. I'm yeah. both. Because I active. I if I think if I was in the group, I would actively be like staying behind and being quiet. But I also would be trying to stay calm and be like, okay, well, this is what's happening, so mm-hmm. I've got to deal with what's happening. You mm-hmm. know, instead of just being in complete disbelief. Right. And so, yeah, I guess for me, like, there was no uh, soldier surrogate that I could really super relate to. But that's not that way, and I think that that's yeah. And as you mentioned, this is also like a very masculine movie. Um, Not necessarily. uh, It's not pro masculine. I don't think. No, no, definitely not. It's masculine the way that like Glenn Gray Glenn Ross is, where it's like you watch only men fight with each other. <laughs> right. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. It's just, uh, you know, sometimes hard to relate to. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, okay, some more trivia. Um, let's see, what else I got? He wrote this script in 1976, so it took him five years to actually make this movie. And this was his uh, fifth movie, I believe, because he did Hard Times, The Driver, The Warriors... He really likes the movies. Um, the Long Riders, which I had totally forgotten about The Long Riders yeah. until I looked it up. 
And I forgot it's the movie with all the brothers. Yeah. Oh, Carradine's, yeah. So weird. So Carradine's, the, the Quades, the Keeches, well, all the brothers. Hard Times is set in the swamp, too. Is it really? Yeah, it's set I don't know in, if I've uh, seen that one. No, we haven't. Yeah. It's Charles Bronson, yeah. Oh, right. Actually, you know, when I was Bullet listening... Bullet to the Head is set in that area yeah. as well. When I was listening to the WTF interview he did with Mark... With, uh, that Walter Hill did with uh, Mark Maron, he was talking about how Charles Bronson, after he made that movie, Charles Bronson never spoke to him again because Charles Bronson's wife was in hard times and Charles Bronson thought that Walter Hill didn't include her in enough shots. <laughs> and so he took it as like a personal affront. And so he never talked to Walter Hill again. Sure. Well, and he was a <laughs> young director at that point. Right. So he definitely was like, yeah, I don't have any time. <laughs> Do you know who I've worked with in my life? Yeah. Yeah. So I just thought that was funny that uh, Charles Bronson was like so, uh, he, was, he was a real watchdog for his wife. Yeah. And they worked in a ton of movies together. She basically was in every one of Charles Bronson's movies. That makes sense. Which, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Speed your way through a few more of these. I mean, everything else I have is, like, I, I learned some really crazy shit about some of the soldiers. Like, I mentioned to you guys that Peter Coyote, his last name was not originally Coyote. He changed it after a trip on Peyote. <laughs> and I found out he has, like, an app. If you ever Man, want... His name really should be Peter Peyote. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but if you ever want a really interesting read, read his uh, Peter Coyote's Wikipedia page because... He didn't start, like, seriously acting in movies and television until he was 39. Mm. And up until that point, he was involved extremely heavily in counterculture in San Francisco. He was in a mime troupe. <laughs> he was in this group called The Diggers that was, like, a commune-type uh, organization where they had, um, like, a free food bank, a free regular bank, a free clothing bank a free, like, housing uh, initiative, mm -hmm. and he, like, helped run it. He also, um, he was good friends with a lot of uh, Native American activists, which is part of why he tripped on peyote. Yeah. Uh, he um, is a Zen Buddhist, <laughs> and he always said that he was a, he's a Buddhist first and an actor second, and if acting got in the way of Buddhism, he would quit. <laughs> And, oh, and he also is, like, a really big narrator for documentaries. Yeah, he narrated and run. So yeah. So guys in the room. And I see, uh, mention this one real quick. Oh, and uh, Walter Hill is in Baby Driver, because of course he is. So when you watch it, keep an eye out for a guy that you would never recognize in a million years. <laughs> a gruff-looking <laughs> older man. Yeah. I wish I could yeah. remember what his role is in Baby Driver, but it's something... Ridiculous. I was, like, was going to skip Baby Driver, but I will check it out just to I, see what I heard on. it's it's Edgar Wright's worst movie so far, but they said even considering it's like it's just really good entertainment. It's just not up to the level of his other movies. It's so. not saying anything important. Yeah, it's just it's more of a throwaway or more of like a thing he made for himself than his other movies. This hey, one here, I haven't, heard, I haven't seen it yet. Well, and actually, in the WTF episode, Walter Hill talked about how he's good friends with Edgar Wright. That's cool. All right. <laughs> they, like, hang out, I guess. I have I have three three trivia things, or not trivia, but three little things about the movie I wanted to mention really quick. Uh, first off, uh, continuing a game we haven't played in a really long time of find hilarious names in the credits, one of the credited extras in this movie 
is named Oral Boral. <laughs> just a good Moral name. Oral Boral. Moral Oral's cousin Oral Boral. Uh, but then we... It's almost like Earl Burroughs, yeah. but Oral Boros. Yeah. Uh, we, uh, the, uh, uh, there's a line David Carradine has earlier in the movie that I forgot to mention, but in reference to the prostitutes, he says to, uh, I think to Sergeant Poole, he says, these women are expecting small unit military penetration. Something along those Ugh. lines, which at, at the time it's like funny because it's so crass, but now saying it, it sounds like what he's saying is that all of the military men have small penises, <laughs> <laughs> small unit penetration. I mean, but the most important thing that I wanted to mention is that for the second episode in, in a row, we have covered a film from 1981 in which a group of people take a canoe of some sort down a river and then the canoes disappear and they are trapped in the woods while uh, people try to kill them. This is the second movie in a row <laughs> that has had that specific set of circumstances, but Southern Comfort is way better than The Burning. It should be very, made very clear. Uh, John, do you have any little things you wanted to mention? I would like to say Southern Comfort is much better than The Burning. Yes. <laughs> um, I mean, you don't have Jason Alexander. But... God. Or Fisher Stevens. Or Fisher Stevens. Um, but you no. do have Perfect Tommy. Yeah. Did you know Stucky is Perfect Tommy from Buckaroo Banzai? Have you seen Buckaroo's Banzai? Oh, it's been a long time. Oh, yeah. Perfect Tommy's the one who's like, he, well, uh, he's, yeah, he's yeah. perfect. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> huh. that, well, that guy is now, uh, he has his own acting studio. He, like, teaches actors to <laughs> Stucky. Act. Oh, yeah. Cool. Here's a face. All right. Well, then, I guess if we're all through that stuff, let's get into it. Oh, I, I cut off John. Oh, sorry. Oh, no, I got nothing more to say about it. Oh, okay. This is a really fucking good movie. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, then, let's, let's do our teachable moments. You can go first. All right. Well, <laughs> I like I said before, um, this movie clearly, for me, is kind of on a continuum with other Walter Hill movies, movies he wrote or directed or both. And uh, with auteurs or people that you would consider auteurs, I think there's a lot of value to seeing uh, the way in which they experiment with ideas or try to improve on them, especially if you're going to be a filmmaker or someone who studies film as an art form in any capacity. So uh, just a, an easy teachable lesson for Southern Comfort is, since if you're watching Southern Comfort, I assume you're probably familiar with Alien or Aliens just being a cinephile, but maybe watch Southern Comfort in the context of those movies to see how this core plot structure, uh, even when done by the same guy, can be interpreted these various ways and just consider that because especially if you're going to be if you're going to write something someday we all have things we go back to and you want to make sure you can wring as much quality material out of them and that's something walter hill is really good at so i'd say that's my teachable moment nice yeah genuine mm -hmm. my teachable moment is more of a request uh so as i mentioned in this movie it's it's all about like group dynamics and how people react to chaos and it is it is a group of men so it's like a very masculine experience of of experiencing chaos but every character is every soldier is very fleshed out like you kind of know a couple characteristics about every single person in the group and because of that even though sometimes they act in 
somewhat surprising ways, you still have a, a fundamental understanding of like who they are in the group. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I have not seen a movie like that 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 does that with women. And I would love to see that movie. Like a, a movie where a group of women, you know, maybe it's not as extreme as like a wartime setting, but they're in a chaotic uh, situation and they have to work together. I mean, and maybe they don't work together, but they have to deal with it together of mm-hmm. how they survive or how they get out of whatever circumstance they're in. Maybe the only movie I can think of is The Descent. I was just thinking. Yeah. And that is a horror movie, and, you know, only one person ends up surviving, well, maybe surviving. Spoilers! (laughs) Well, whatever. (laughs) That movie's old enough, I can spoil it. Um, Also, it's a horror movie, so are people really going to (laughs) survive? Yeah. But I would love, I would even love to see a movie like that that's like a drama. Um, Or, and, and I would say that there aren't that many movies where... There's, like, you know, both genders working together in, like, a situation of chaos. Like, the the easiest example to pinpoint is one we've already talked about, which is the Alien franchise. Yeah. And the last couple of movies have been total shit in dealing <laughs> with group dynamics. Yeah. Like, Alien Covenant? Go fuck yourself. <laughs> uh, there's no group dynamic. Everyone is just out for themselves. And, okay, maybe that is a part of survival mentality but they're supposed to be you know on this ship working together to create this colony and once one thing goes wrong they're like well fuck it i'm just gonna do you know deal with myself so, yeah so your teachable moment is that when you watch southern comfort you should imagine you should consider that this genre should it doesn't need to be limited to men right because the core of it is the structure and the allegory, not the gender. I think there's unlimited potential to the idea of exploring group dynamics. All right. That's what, I guess, my teachable moment is. I like it. All right, John. Um, Good. I'm glad you like it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I guess my teachable moment would be... Um, maybe this is a good lesson in a film that you don't have to show everything. That there's um, certain sides of a thing that maybe only need to be captured. You don't need to capture the whole cube. Um, I think that that is something that is incredibly lost in an age of we need deep backstories. We have to have origin stories. We got to have all this crap that like gets us to the core of like I need to know everything about these people before I can move forward with the story. Yet, when you walk into a kitchen, you don't know... I don't know the history of your microwave. I don't know the history of that. But like, I know them as objects. Would you like to know the history of our microwave? <laughs> you can tell me later. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's it, that's immaterial. A backstory has kind of trumped um, mystery in my eye. It's, it's allowed everything to have to be... had light shown on it. And the most mysterious things we know are those that are still cloaked in some darkness. And I think this is a great movie that um, uses that in an incredibly non-pretentious, straight-ahead sort of thriller scenario. Yeah, that's great. I think that's yeah, great. I agree with that. Yeah. All right, well then, if that's it, then I guess uh, call this a discussion. Uh, <laughs> thanks for coming, Jeff. Yeah, thanks Thank for, you. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. This yeah. was awesome. Yeah.
All right, well, this has been The Secret Cinema. I'm Paolo. I'm Gary. I'm John. All right, thanks for listening. Peace. <laughs> Relax, Harden. These are the good Cajuns. Some other guys are a long ways back. Relax. Secret Cinema is produced and edited by Paolo Corona. All theme songs and original music are written and performed by Ricardo Ortiz. Any additional music or samples are taken from the film featured on this week's episode. All logos and artwork are created by Carrie Chapin. You can follow Carrie on Instagram at CarrieSawThis and see more of her artwork at www.carriechafee.com. You can watch Paolo's short films at www.vimeo.com slash or read more of his ramblings about film at www.letterbox.com slash Follow The Secret Cinema on Instagram at Secret Cinema Podcast, on Twitter at Covert Celluloid, or like us on Facebook. Secret Cinema is a commentary and criticism podcast, and its use of film dialogue and film music for illustrative purposes falls under the fair use provisions of U.S. copyright law. The Secret Cinema is a product of Larry Lake Productions. All rights reserved. Thanks for listening.